Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Remember that song, I'm sure you will, that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Is that something that you still sing at Living Hope? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though no one go with me, I still will follow. Though no one goes with me, still I will follow. Though no one goes with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. There's really, in the first section of Psalm 34, a determination from the psalmist. There's a resolution from the psalmist. And this is part of the first part of the psalm. If you wanted to split this psalm into two sections, you could split it from verse 1 to 10, looking at the testimony of a righteous person or the righteous man. And then the teaching of a righteous person from verse 11 through to verse 22. But we're going to really focus on the first few verses, verse 1 to 3 of this wonderful psalm. And that is so foundational for the testimony of a righteous person. And that is really the resolutions. And there's three resolutions inside of verse 1 to 3. And it's good for us, however, though, to read through the whole of the psalm so that we might keep it in mind as we focus in particular on verse 1 to 3. So if you have your Bibles with you and they are open, I'm going to ask you that you stand as we read God's Word together from Psalm 34, reading throughout the 22 verses. God's Word reads, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be exalted amongst us, that you would teach us your ways, and that we would walk in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good. Oh, must first Sorry. Oh, sorry. There we go. Thank you very much. I was told about this, but clearly forgot. Hope that's working out there. It is important to note that the inspiration of the psalm starts right at the beginning before verse 1. And many a times as those that have put the, the Psalms together and have started at verse 1, actually after what was already inspired. The title of the Psalm, as you would see it in the ESV, is not inspired, but you have got a context that is given to us and that is inspired by God. We are told that this is of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So this starts at verse minus 1. That's where the psalmist begins. This is the historical context which is given to us in this inspired by God psalm. And you might look at the rest of the psalm and wonder, but how does this fit in with what we read about in 1 Samuel 21? You could turn there if you'd like. 1 Samuel 21 from verse 10 to 15. We see the account given of what happens with David at this point. And it's important for us to note this. Because this is a very real person going through very real trials. But he's a spiritual man, not just a physical man. And it's, in a sense, David going through a lot of fear. You'll remember that he's just run away from Saul. Saul had tried to actively kill David. David had been anointed to become king in Saul's place. David had had various victories as he stood and he slayed Goliath, and we'll touch on that in a moment. But he had a very real life where he went through very real trials. And yet he faced this world not just in the physical sense, but he faced it spiritually. This man after God's own heart. God dealing with his servant even in the midst of much fear and even much Foolishness, as we've already heard this morning. God preserving a man, even through things that he does, which seem relatively crazy. If you look at 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 to 15, it says this, And David rose and fled that day from Saul. 
and went to Akish the king of Gath. And the servants of Akish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and was very much afraid of Akish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors and the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Interesting how you see even the behavior of Akish there. The title that's used for Akish in our psalm is Abimelech. That was a word that was used for the different kings of the, of the Philistines. Like Pharaoh was a title used of the kings of, the, of Egypt, so Abimelech is used of the kings of the Philistines. And you'll do well to remember that at a stage not too far before this, Israel only had two swords. Jonathan and Saul were the only ones who had swords, and the Philistines at a stage even reigned over Israel. And you'll remember what happened with with David as well as Goliath, but you'll notice the words of this man. He says, Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? It's altogether possible that Akish actually realized, but this man's not really mad, he's just pretending to be mad, but yet God still preserved David, still looked after his servant. Despite the deceitful way that David was behaving and the fear that drove him towards letting his spit run down his beard and to behave in a shameful manner. In a way, this also walks that thin line between that responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. You see God providentially looking after David despite what he's doing even here. And David plays a very risky move before Abimelech. You know, just to come into the very presence of a king was one thing, but to behave like this in the presence of a Philistine king. David was a wanted man by Saul. You'll remember that the Philistines as well as Saul were against each other. They were enemies. But not just that, David had been pronounced to be king. And somehow the Philistines knew that. They knew this is supposed to be the king of Israel. This is the one over whom they sing. Why were they singing that about David? Do you remember what happened? David comes and he flees to a place that is least likely to be thought of. He goes to the very enemy of Saul. And he goes to the very capital city of the enemy of Saul. To a city called Gath. Do you remember who came from Gath? You're right, Goliath. Goliath came from Gath. If you look at 1 Samuel 21, you'll notice that just before this, David was at Nod, where he was with another man named Ahimelech, not Abimelech, Ahimelech, who was the priest at Nod, and he eats the showbread. You'll remember that about David as he says, I'm on a very special errand. Saul has sent me on a special mission. In many respects, David was lying through his teeth already to Ahimelech before he lied to Abimelech. 
And not just that, he asks him, he says, don't you have a sword or a spear here? And Ahimelech brings him a sword. You remember whose sword? He says, this is the only sword, the only weapon that we have here. It's the one that you used to cut off the head of Goliath. It's Goliath's sword. Most likely a very big sword that would have needed to be strapped on David's back. So he takes the sword that most likely was even made in Gath. And he goes back to Gath, where there probably was still some family members of Goliath. You can see that in 1 Samuel 21, 8-9. He says, Then David said to Ahimelech, this is the priest, Then have you not here a spear or a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. Because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. It's a famous sword, the sword of Goliath. And Israel sang that song when they came back from battle, which made Saul jealous. Saul's killed a couple of men. David's killed many because he had chopped off the head of Goliath. That same sword that now is in David's possession. And here, Abimelech, the title which, as I said, is uh, not his proper name title, but just the fact that he's the king of the Philistines. And here he is before this king. And the people say to him, this is actually the anointed king of Israel. And David has killed many Philistines in his life already. He's famous for this. And God uses this strategy that David employs for David's good, even though David was lying. God had his plan for David and looked after David and sovereignly cared for David. And so God allows this plan to work. And Akish is thrown off his guard by David. He says, come on, man. Haven't I got enough madmen here? Now you've got this guy? And God looks after his anointed king. As a side note, remember when last the Philistines had one of Israel's heroes as captive? A man named Samson. How they tortured him. How they plucked out his eyes. It, it starts to make you realize why David took these things to heart. He was with a very real enemy. And suddenly they knew who he was. It might have been easier for him to go unnoticed had he not got Goliath's sword on his back. But that's the historical context of our psalm. Not much else in the psalm would really refer back to this, but this is very important for us to realize. This is a very real individual going through a very real trial, and he's just gone through this. God has just delivered him from this Philistine king, and David doesn't look at his strategy as that which delivered him. He recognizes who his salvation came from. He recognizes who his God is. And this is the testimony, or the beginning part, of the testimony of a righteous person going through real life things. Let me note again to you from verse 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord 
at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. So as we look at the testimony of a righteous person, or the beginning of a testimony of a righteous person, the hope would be that you yourself would have the same kind of a determination, the same kind of a resolution in regard to your walk before God, recognizing the great salvation which God has provided for you, if indeed you have called upon His name. If you are a Christian this morning, then your own resolution can be that of what David has in these first three verses. And when people look at you and when they look at me, they ought to see very much a monument that is built to the glory of God. Somebody who has been saved by Him and then lives for Him and then gives glory to Him. This is part of what you and I do on this earth. We are here as light and as salt to this world that is around us. And just as we are able to now learn from David's testimony, so the world looks on at you at living hope. They see, does this church shine for the one that they claim to be saved by? So as we study these characteristics, it's my prayer that you would possess them and that you would be able to rejoice in them, but also that you would this morning come to this holy resolution alongside David. Maybe you've not thought about these things before. May the Lord then use His Word to work in our hearts. And so there are three resolutions, three holy resolutions of the righteous person that we find in verse 1 to 3. Another way that you could say resolutions of a righteous person is determination. There's this determination in this righteous man to live in a way that would honor God. And we find that in three main ways in verse 1 to 3. Look again there. David has this experience about the salvation of the Lord. And that's very much what we see throughout this psalm. I'll highlight a few verses because this sets the context of those three verses in the beginning. He says there in verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from all my fears. David's confessing he had a lot of fear. That's one of the reasons he behaved the way that he did. But while he had this fear, he was going to God. A very real man going through real difficulties. He's fleeing from Saul and he almost goes right out from running from the lion into jumping into the Limpopo River where there's the crocodiles. And he's facing some serious fear. Look at verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. David's not unaccustomed to what he's just gone through. He knows what he's just gone through. He's confessing that. Maybe you look at David and you go, how could you lie, David? How could you try and get out of these things? He's not dodging that. He's saying, I am this poor man. I'm just a beggar. I'm a beggar who's come to God. And he saved me from my troubles. David's not saying, look at how well I did with my act of behaving like a madman. He recognizes it is God who has saved him. 
Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. That's where David went for refuge. More than going to the city of Gath, spiritually he ran to God. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. Look at verse 17, 18, 19. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. It's an interesting Hebrew word even used for when the righteous cry. It's the word bleating. Like when I'm bleating, bad, God hears. The Lord hears and He delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Why would He be brokenhearted? Well, He served Saul like a father. Jonathan was his brother. He's brokenhearted. All of his family has deserted him. We see that in other Psalms. You see, if they aligned themselves with David, it could mean their death. You remember what Saul did to Ahimelech and his whole family line. When he heard that he had given Goliath's sword to David, he ordered his men to round up all of those priests and their family and their children, and he murdered them all. That's how hell-bent Saul was on destroying David. Saul battled to listen to God's command to kill the enemies of God when God had commanded him to do that. But killing his own enemies and their whole family, even if they priests, no problem to Saul. The Lord's yet to the broken heart and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Doesn't mean that David never had more difficult times to come. We've got a lot more to say about where David goes even from here. He had many trials even in the future, but he knows who his Savior is. Look at verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We touched on Romans 8.28 this morning. The theme of salvation runs very deep for David. Remembering how the Lord had already promised even that David would be the king of Israel. God had made a promise to David. Not just that, Samuel, when he speaks to Saul about how God had ripped the kingdom away from Saul, speaks about how God had given the kingdom to another. God had made promises, very real promises. And he was going to look after David. He would be king over Israel, but he's going through a great valley here. He's gone through great fears here. And his character has been shaped. You see, you and I are often more concerned about our comfort than what we are about our character. But what's God most concerned about? Your comfort. Or your character. There's been some uncomfortable things even happening this last year, right? And God's concerned about our character being more like Christ. Looking to the Father saying, not my will, but yours be done. Entrusting ourselves to God, enduring, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But look at even 1 Samuel in chapter 16, verse 13. There you find that then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is anointing David. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Just after this, it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So even here, when David is acting like a madman, God's got his plan. And in a special sense, David recognizes the way that God had saved him from a very real, life-threatening situation before this king of the Philistines. And there was a holy determination that sets in for David as he's stepping away from this situation based upon the salvation of God, based upon the way that God has looked after him. And there's this holy resolution which we find in those first three verses. And the first one is a resolution towards a life of praise. A resolution towards a life of praise. Look at verse 1 again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Very real and very picturesque. Just a bit earlier on, his, ex- his experience was spittle running from his mouth, right? Behaving like a madman. And David's going, no, no, my resolution based on God's salvation is that I will live a life of praise. Have you been saved, dear one? Because that's the resolution of a saved person. The whole person is committed to the whole Christ who died for the whole life. That's a resolution of a saved person. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord. Does he say sometimes? Does he say when it's convenient? Does he say when it's all going well with me? When I'm prosperous? When I have peace? He says all the time. When you have been bought with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, You cannot help but live completely for Him. That's what happens. You no longer belong to yourself. You have been bought with a price. And that price is the precious price of the blood of Christ. So then you can say along with the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whether I eat or whether I drink, whatever I do, it will be done for the glory of God. The Christian lives their life and spends their time and their efforts and their energies praising God. The times that you are not praising God in your life can really be summarized as the times when you are sinning. That's when you sin. Either you're praising or you're sinning. We have been bought back. We were going our own way. But God gave us the way. We had bought the lie, but God gave us the truth. The wages of our sin was death, but God, praise God, He gave us the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. The more that we live to the praise of God, the more that we live even as our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our Lord Jesus, even through His obedience to the point of death on the cross, lived a life of utmost praise to the Father. He said, the words that I say are my Father's words. The deeds that I do are my Father's deeds. And this is the whole purpose of the Christian, dear one. To live to the glory of God. This is done through a life of praise. It's, you know, you get different t-shirts that have writing on it. I can see one or two of you have got some kind of writing on your t-shirt. My eyesight's not that great, so it can't be a distraction to me at all. I hardly can see any of you. Is anybody here? No. But you've got t-shirts that will have writing on it. In many respects, the Christian has writing on them. And when somebody looks at them, they ought to see praise to God. Glory to God. Somebody who's been bought back. You'll remember back in the garden, sadly, that man wanted his independence from God. He chose to go his own way. He bought the lie. And with it came death. But God in His tremendous mercy and in His awesome steadfast love reached out and He showed us what love is. Yet while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. When Jesus has saved the person, When He has saved you or saved me, this is when we can live to His praise. So maybe you're thinking about that a little bit this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't really, my life doesn't really say praise to God. Well, then you need to be born again. You need to be saved. Then you are still in your sin and you are still heading towards death. And there is a way that seems right to a man and his, its end is destruction. Then I plead with you this morning that you turn towards Jesus Christ. God has provided a way for you. The Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have this morning though as a Christian that is seated before me. If you don't have a holy resolution to live for his glory. Then you need to repent. And you need to ask God to change your heart. That you would stop living for self and that you would live for the Savior who bought you. And let me ask you, dear Christian, have you grown cold in your affections toward the Lord Jesus? Then do something worthy of the name Christian this morning. And make up your mind to worship Him. Make up your mind to worship Him. Whether I live or whether I die. Whatever I do. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Are you able to say that this morning? Be resolute. Cut out anything else in your life that is distracting you from a life of worship toward the good Father who saved you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in a very simple manner, let me ask you, and very practically, are you reading your Bibles? Are you praying? If your answer is no, then you are not committed toward a life of worship. How do we know somebody who is a worshipper of the Lord? It is somebody that is committed toward God's word and toward prayer. And that life is a life that is worshipping Him. A life of worship is not confined to a Sunday morning worship time together with the body of Christ. As enjoyable as that is, 
What Sunday morning is for the Christian is a culmination of a week long of worship. That's what it is. Where you've been worshipping Him every day, all the time, throughout the various situations of your life. And then when you come together, you just have a choir of praise because you've been praising all along in the week. You will, however, be a weak worshipper instead of worshipping throughout the week when you have a weak view of the salvation of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you don't realize what God has done. And most likely, this is a symptom of not then being a worshipper. Or the symptom of this is really pointing towards something even more cancerous in the heart, which is a low view of the Savior Himself. And so you don't worship because you don't really know Jesus. So get to knowing Jesus, dear one. And how are you going to do that? Well, He has been revealed to us. He has been given to us so that we might know Him and so that we might know His Father who sent Him. And if you're not reading your Bible, then an arrogance or a pride has set in in your own heart and you then not a worshipper of the Lord. Singing and joy flows from theology, from knowing God. And how do we know God the Father? but to know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we know the Lord Jesus Christ unless we are studying His Word? Yes, we have preachers who faithfully preach. And they tell you about this good gospel. But that's not enough, dear one. You need to be studying the Bible. And joy comes from being a disciple of the Lord Jesus and you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus when you are and when you have the disciplines of righteousness and one of those fundamental disciplines is I'm going to praise Him I'm going to praise Him where you've decided to do that to the true child of God there is not only a worship of God on the Lord's day but every single day and every single hour of the day and no matter what we go through because God our God is God of the thunderstorms as well as the God of the daylight whether you're in a prison cell in Malawi or at living hope on the Lord's day he's our God and he is worthy of our worship and our praise No matter what we find ourselves in, under His sovereignty and in His providence, we are those that are worshippers primarily because of His grace. You can do this, dear one, whether you're signing a business deal or whether you're putting a spoonful of oats in your child's mouth at the breakfast table. Every waking moment is to be spent praising the Lord. His praise shall continually be on my mouth, the psalmist says. And if you truly live a life of praise, you won't be able to keep your mouth back from speaking the praise of God. Praise is going to be on your mouth. Because the mouth speaks about that which, what is full of? The heart. There's a correlation between what rules the heart and what fills the mouth. And what proceeds from a person's mouth. The Bible teaches us this. If the gospel rules the heart because of the great salvation of God, you can't help but have a mouth filled with His praise. And it flows out. 
It bubbles over. It's like a fountain because he has filled the heart. And it gives out a healing balm to this world. It's like streams of living water. A life of praise doesn't just live every moment to the praise of God. It speaks the praise of God. This person's lips will praise Him because their heart praises Him. He rules their heart. Just as an illustration to this, Ephesians 5 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then verse 4 in particular says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Why is it out of place? Well, because Christ rules our heart. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. The Christian is one who gives thanksgiving to the Lord. Is busy praising the Lord. Thanksgiving or praise should be upon our mouths. Not filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, what are people hearing from my mouth? What are people hearing from my mouth? Not here at Living Hope on the Lord's Day. What's your wife hearing, husband, when you're at home and you're speaking? What's your husband hearing, wife, when you're speaking? What are your children hearing from you as mom and dad? What are people in your workplace hearing? Is it a praise of God or is it something else? And I'd suggest just a simple way to control your mouth. Control the ears and the eye gate. That's just a simple suggestion. If you can control or redirect the eyes and the ears, you'll begin to control easier what comes and fills the heart. And therefore, you'll be able to control easier that which comes out the mouth. What comes in the ear gate and the eye gate often fills the storage places of the heart and then comes out of the mouth gate. What are you entertained by, Christian? Does it fit through the, the biblical filter of the Scriptures? You don't need to necessarily download a program to, to control this, we have the Scriptures, and the Scriptures have a filter for us. And we should apply that which we see and that which we hear through the filter of God's Word. Well, where do you see that? Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What are you thinking about? Often that's going to be starting to come out of your mouth. Either you will indulge in self, or you will discipline self. And if you discipline self, you start with a determination to praise God. That's the only motivation that actually will help you discipline self in the first place. Let me tell you, if you are thinking about ungodly things, ungodliness is just going to spew out of your mouth. Because that's what you fill in your heart with. But we've been saved, dear one. We've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anything grander to think upon? Why would we want surge in the heart when we can have such grace and mercy from God? 
Our hearts were not meant to be dumps. They were meant to be rainforests filled with life. So a little secret to Christian living. Control the input and God will help you to control that output. You'll be able to praise as you think upon the marvelous grace of our Savior. All this to simply say that a whole life must and should praise the whole Lord who saved you. The righteous person is determined to live a life of praise. Are you? Secondly, the second resolution we see in verse 2 is a resolution towards humble boasting. Humble boasting. If the first aspect of a life of praise is really the writing on a person, like that t-shirt that says, I'm here to praise God, and my life praises God, the second point is very much a signpost. What are you pointing towards inside of your praising? What are you pointing towards? Do you point people towards yourself and go, look at how great I am? Look at how well I did? Look at how great I was? Look, I tricked this king of the Philistines. Surely I get some good praise for myself here. What a good ploy. I mean, if he knew who I really was. Do we find David saying that? Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast where? In the Lord, in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then we also introduce to a sense of this being corporate. Where's his boast? David's boast is not in himself. Not in himself one bit. His boast is in the Lord. We have a little children's book at home called Bobby Boast a Lot. I don't know if any of you have ever read about Bobby boasts a lot, but he boasts about everything, but he keeps on finding people that are actually better than him at the things that he boasts about. And it's a good little book just moralistically teaching about not boasting. But really, our own human nature is a nature that's filled with boasting. We were not only made for praise, but we were made to be living signposts. We were made to be signposts pointing to our marvelous Creator. Did you know that that's one of the reasons that Adam was made? And why Eve was made in the image of God? That they would be signposts pointing to an awesome Creator. And sadly, many signposts have done a U-turn and start pointing to self. The arrow no longer points where it's meant to point. Rather, it's an arrow going, me, mine, I. Have you seen that? You probably witnessed that all around you. If you've seen any adverts even. Well, I mean, you know, wash your hair with this product because you're worth it and whatever. Every single false religion panders to this me-focusedness. Every single false religion. Why? Because every single false religion has something in common. They are works-based. Did you know that? Works-based. Do this, and you'll get this. Or don't do this, then you can keep this. Every single false religion does that. And it panders to self. And it gets self to pat self on the back going, look at what a good man am I. And they receive the prize because they deserved it. So they boast about it. 
And I'm okay before God because I did X, Y, Z and I did not do A, B, C. But those other people who are not what I am, they deserve to have that because they didn't do as well as I did. And they did the things that I don't do. It's only Christianity, true biblical Christianity, that makes its boast in Jesus alone. We make our boast in Him alone because we are not those that gained this. We have been given this by mercy and grace. What a gift we've received. We did not deserve it. We did not deserve it. That's what grace means. And that which we deserve to get, we didn't get it. That's what mercy means. And God has poured that on us lavishly. It's only biblical faith that makes its boast in God alone. It's God who did this for me. I was going my own way and my own way was leading towards death. And He's given me the way. I believed the lie. That Satan said that I'd be more happy doing it my way. But God in His marvelous mercy has given me the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was following death. I was even a slave to death. The book of Hebrews says that. Slaves to death. That's what you see, dear ones, in the world around you. Is people who are enslaved to the very fear of death. And we've been rescued. Redeemed, restored, worked in by our marvelous God. All false religions, they boast in themselves. It's us who have been bought by Jesus who boast in Him. And so the second way that this determination is played out in the Christian's life or this holy resolution is that they are resolute regarding humble boasting. It sounds kind of like oxymoronical, right? But it isn't. There's a humble boasting. We have been humbled by God. We no longer in our pride. And we now make our boast in the Lord. There's a right recognition of grace and of mercy. And when the psalmist says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, he means that the whole inner person, the software of his life, the, the main frame of him as an individual, the real person beneath the skin, beneath the dust, this embodied dust, this one that's inside, makes his boast in the Lord. We often think of David only as a man after God's own heart because of his repentance. It's also because of his boasting. His boasting in the Lord. Recognizing that it is God who did, who did this. Notice even earlier on in the story in 1 Samuel when he goes and he fights against Goliath. We often think that this is some kind of a small man against a really big man. You know, when you've got your challenges in life and you've got to come at it and you've got to sling that sling. And if you picked up the five stones, love, joy, peace, patience and kindness, you've got to put the love one in there. And you've got to knock out your giant... That way, and you've probably heard that sermon preached like that at some point in your life, and it's terrible. Because the point of that passage is the greatness of God. And who God is. You come against me with spear and javelin, I come against you in the name of God. And the whole world's going to know that there is a God in Israel. 
Because you're going to lie dead at the end of this day. David made his boast in the Lord. Even when he speaks to Saul a bit earlier on in that passage, he says, I've gone up against bears, I've gone up against lions, and it's God who preserved me. He made his boast in the Lord. Did you know that we are born natural boasters? Either our boast will be in sin, or our boast will be in the Savior from sin. That's really your two options. You cannot love two masters. You cannot love both the world and then love the Word of God. You cannot love sin while you're loving the Savior from sin. And again, David shows us the connection between the inner person's commitment to the Lord and the fact that others will even hear about this. Let the humble hear and be glad. Doesn't it make you so glad when you hear somebody else boasting in the Lord? It does, right? It's the humble, those that themselves have been even humbled, sometimes even humiliated, because we were in our pride, and now we're the humble. That's what the Bible calls believers the humble. Jesus calls us the humble in Matthew 5 as well. Let the humble hear and be glad. When we look at the story and the testimony of David, doesn't it still bring gladness to your heart? Wow, look at what God did. Praise God for a man like David. Praise God for a man like Peter. I think through some of the names in the Bible. And I praise God for men like them. Because we're not that different, right? And we still need His mercy and His grace just as much as they do. There's a rejoicing that takes place in the witnesses of the life that boasts in the Lord. Living hope, make your boast in the Lord. What rules the heart will not be kept away from the sound that that life makes as a beautiful melody to the humble who hear it. Pride is in exact opposition of the life that boasts in the Lord. And maybe this morning you need to be able to admit that before the Lord Jesus, that you've been boasting in self, which is pride, not boasting in the Lord. And then to be resolute with the psalmist and say, I'm going to make my boast in the Lord. Pride boasts in itself, in its self-achievements, in its self-selfness, in its self-sufficiency. But those who are humble boast in the Lord and rejoice when others boast in the Lord. And we see another insight into a humble people. They are glad when they hear somebody else making their boast in the Lord. That's very different, right? With us as Christians, we're so different from the world. The world wants to step on each other's heads to try and get to the top. For the Christian, we, we are so glad when we see somebody boasting in the Lord. We are glad when we hear the testimony of Pastor Josh and him preaching in the church where God has taken him. We're glad about that. Though you may still have a sadness that he's not here anymore and he's there, but you're boasting in the Lord and you're glad in the Lord for what the Lord is doing. And you make your boast in the Lord. Not your boast in yourself. And the world is filled with competition. But Christians, we're filled with companionship. The true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with camaraderie, not competition. 
The Christian loves to see Christ being honored. And he loves seeing Christ being honored in another Christian. They hope and they long for, for the best in other Christians. The true church is not filled with competition. And with trying to step on one another to get to the top or in some kind of position or another position. It's filled with those that are washing each other's feet. That are loving one another. Helping one another. Because the humble are glad when they see the boasting of others in the Lord. When looking through this exact point this morning at about 6.42, Levi was sitting next to me on the couch. And he'd been already... You know, quite, I hope he's not listening too much. He'd already been quite painful at this point. <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd been up a bit earlier. Maxine was still sleeping. She doesn't need any beauty sleep, but she sleeps in a bit longer. And, and he was sitting there quietly next to me on the couch. And, and he looked up at me and I took a break because I needed to plug the laptop into charge. And he said, Daddy, I was just sitting next to you. I wasn't saying anything, Daddy. I was just sitting next to you. And I said to him, yes, my boy, you did so well. No, I actually said, you did well. That's what I said. Yes, Levi, you did well. And then he says to me, yes, Dad, I did very well. <laughs> and then he just praised God for the little children who make these points for us. Because we kind of do the same thing. It wasn't long after he'd asked me to make him oats, and the oats had already been done, and so I was dishing the oats, and he starts singing, My God is so big, so strong, and so faithful. And I just thought, what a contrast. Because this is exactly us. One moment we're going, Look, God, at how well I did! And the next moment we're going, My God is so big, so strong, and so faithful. That's what we learn from a little child, but how often are we like that? Right? Somehow trying to pat ourselves on the back. Have we forgotten that we are just dust that has been embodied? The very breath of life that we have is owed to Him. The very fact that your heart is beating is because He decided, I want your heart to keep beating. That He has already planned before you the good deeds that you would do, that you'd walk in them, the days that are, that are numbered before you. Your days are even numbered by the Lord. You don't have any control of when it will end or, or how long you've got left. Have we become so prideful even in our Christianity that we boast in our theology? Thinking that somehow we got it ourselves and so everybody else who doesn't come to Living Hope or Benoni Bible Church, well, they must be bad, right? Have we gotten to a point where we start boasting, look at how well I did. And then just a little bit later, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's a humble boasting which is very much a part of the testimony of the righteous person. And that boasting is in the Lord alone. Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it from me to boast in anything else. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What boast is your life making? What are you proud of in your life? Have you forgotten that you just embodied thus? 
And, and just as a means of trying to make this a little bit more practical to you, I know that Alan's quite gifted with technology and with like MP3s and taking recordings and that. Let's say Alan was recording you this last week. He put a device on you last week Sunday, right? You don't know about it. I don't know. He implanted it in your shoe. He used hope to distract you and just like put in a little device there. And and he's been recording you the whole week. And he puts together an MP3 of everything that you said in the last week. And then we get here today and he pushes play for the rest of the church to hear all of the things that you've been saying. What would we hear, dear one? Would we hear somebody who's making their boast in the Lord? Or would we hear something quite different? Something quite shameful? Something which you need to confess before the Lord and ask Him for forgiveness? The righteous person has a humble boast in the Lord. Far be it for me to boast in anything else other than the cross of my Lord Jesus. Look at what He's done for me. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this, and you can go and read the passages regarding boasting. And thirdly, this morning, a resolution towards corporate worship in verse 3. Third resolution. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. There's so much I want to actually say on this, and I am keeping an eye on the time. But yeah, even our evangelism is touched by this. You see, because when you resolute about praising God, and when you resolute about having a humble boast, which is not just the writing on you, but the signpost that kind of flashes and LEDs and says, that's where all the glory belongs, you can't help but be somebody who wants others to do it with you. Evangelism basically is a person going out saying, come worship the Lord with me. Come worship the Lord with me. I found the place where beggars get something to drink and get something to eat. Come with me there. He's worthy of us worshipping Him. And our corporate worship as a church, even here at, at Living Hope, is because of the fact that we've been saved and we want to worship together. So the third righteous resolution comes in here, a resolution regarding not just a life of praise or towards a humble boasting, but thirdly, a resolution toward corporate worship. The humble here is our boasting in verse 2, but this person says, come praise with me. Let us worship God together. In this righteous person, there's a collective kind of a worship which we see. We see David committed towards this. David was a wonderful worshipper of the Lord, and he loved to worship with the throng of praise. He loved to worship with other worshippers as well. And you become like those even that you are with, and those that you will worship with. We are very much aware of this as the church of the living God. As the ecclesia, the called out ones, those that are put together, those that assemble in His name. We have something like this morning which was a call to worship because we are committed to this. And the psalmist exclaims, oh magnify the Lord with me. What does the word magnify mean? Well it means to exalt, it means to honor, it means to glorify, it means to make much of. To 
cause one to even have a high status. Now, when you think about the word magnify, it might be that a magnifying glass comes to your mind. Well, if it didn't before, now it has. What does a magnifying glass do? Well, it makes something that is smaller bigger, right? But that's not what we mean about this. This should really actually bring a telescope to your mind. Because a telescope really helps you to see how big someone or something really is. And that's what this means. Come magnify the Lord with me. Come and be part of a group that puts a telescope on the glory of God. And puts a telescope there that we might realize just how awesome He is. Just how great He is. Have a look through our praise as a corporate group of Christians and see through the telescope at how glorious God is. Corporate worship is a telescope and has the same effect upon the individual when they are now together in a corporate sense. They're able to look and see how great they are. When they're assembled under Christ, her head, they get a better view of just how great God is. That's part of what we do week on week. We're looking at how great God is. And when we come together as a church, we come to worship. That means to ascribe worth to. When we come to worship, it is to magnify the Lord, to make much of Him, to cause Him to have a high status amongst us. We get together and we go, it's not about the preacher. It's not about the singing. It's not about you. It's about Him. That's what we do in corporate worship. And when we get ready on the Lord's Day, when you got dressed even this morning, it's for that very reason. The Lord is worth it. When we say no to sporting events that might be on the same day, so that we would be obedient to God and ascribe to Him worth, it's for this reason. When we set our priorities right, it's for this reason. Because our God is great. And he's worthy to be worshipped. And let me say, dear one, when your chair is empty on a Sunday here at Living Hope, for some other reason that is not providential, because there are providential reasons why your chair may be empty. But when your chair is empty for another reason, other than a providential reason, that means that you've made something else more worth it to you. Our mutual friend, Robert Aleph, and Alan's friend and my friend, he's down at Jeffrey's Bay. He's an elder at Jeffrey's Bay Bible Church. And he made this statement to me. He said, you know, Rocky, I pray because he loves surfing. He absolutely loves surfing. I mean, this is like a mad surfer man, completely. He had a pool in Polokwane when he was a lecturer there, and he'd surf in his pool. That's how much he loved surfing. He said, I pray that the greatest waves come on the Lord's day so that I can say, Jesus, you're worth more to me. That's a heart of a worshipper. Is something else more important to you? Sadly, it seems that to many a Christian, they rather find an excuse to miss corporate worship, simply because they're not resolute about it. They've not made this decision like the psalmist makes, to worship with one another. We had some family visits, so I'm, I'm not coming. We had a birthday in our family, so I'm not coming. We had the sports event, 
Or the children were studying for an exam, so we're not coming. We had a late night on Saturday, so we slept in. And I would suggest to you that that which you replace your weekly corporate worship with is that which you personally magnify in your life. And that's what you're putting the place of being more important than, than the Lord. And I'm not being legalistic about this, not at all. I'm actually being a libertarian here because you've been set free from the world. You've been set free from the world and you've been brought in to His church, His bride, His people. And I'm not saying for one moment that if you miss corporate worship, you lose your salvation. Don't get me wrong. But it's because of our great salvation and we want to worship, right? We want to worship with each other because of the great salvation of God and what He's done in our lives. Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's exalt His name together. In the determined life, that's a life devoted to praise, devoted toward humble boasting, and toward togetherness in worship. That's the people that we part of, the people of God, the ecclesia, the called out ones, and we worship. Are you living that kind of a determined life? That's the very foundation of a testimony of a righteous person in verse 1 to 3. Committed to private worship, committed to public boasting in the Lord, and a togetherness with the people of God. That song that I started off with, I have decided to follow Jesus. Have you decided? My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Resolution in the Christian life is the very starting point of revival. It's bowing a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, we pray that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you would help us to be resolute, to determine to live a life that lays a great foundation in regard to our testimony before you. Thank you for what you did in, in the life of King David. Thank you for the way that you guarded him and the way that you saved him. We thank you for your mighty promises which you had given to him. And most especially this morning, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Lord Jesus came from the very lineage of David. That that moment where you saved David before Kish, the king of the Philistines, when you rescued him even there, that your eternal plan had already been in place where Jesus would come. We think of other areas where David even failed, where he sinned against you, but you were so gracious. We make our boast in you this morning. And there really is nothing in us to boast about. You are so good. Thank you for what you are doing at Living Hope. Thank you for the way that you are preserving the saints here, that you are working in them. And I pray, Lord God, that there would be a holy determination, even by the people that are part of Living Hope this morning, 
towards a life of praise, towards humble boasting and togetherness in the gospel. Worshipping you with one another. We pray that we would be those that coming together would be looking through a telescope at how great you are. How marvellous you are and that we would ourselves worship you. I pray for the homes, I pray for the husbands and wives and the children. I pray Lord God that we would be a people that are resolute about worshipping you. Take away from us the distractions of this world. Help us to cast aside any sin that so easily clings to us and to run the race of endurance that is set before us looking to Jesus. We want to be those that are living sacrifices for your glory. We want to be those that not just have the, the writing on us saying God is worthy of praise. We want to be those that are living signposts that get together with each other and point with one another towards the marvelous work that God has done. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace toward us. And thank you that we can be here this morning worshiping you. You are worthy. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.